what was hot in 2023. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs, with Patrick Wells on the back-end production. This is the show where we work to bridge literacy research into practice, and I'm very glad to have you with us for this episode. If this is your first time and you enjoy the show, I would appreciate leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you receive the content. That will help others find the show. And if this isn't your first episode and you've been around a while, I'd appreciate if you'd share the episode with a friend or colleague that you feel may benefit. And there is plenty in this episode to share. My guest today is Dr. Evan Ortlieb, and we are discussing the results of the What's Hot in Literacy survey for 2023. This is a survey that began with Dr. Jack Cassidy clear back in 1997 and has been conducted every year since then. Currently, Dr. Ortlieb conducts the study in conjunction with Dr. Stephanie Grote-Garcia. I mentioned this in the episode, but I'll also note here that Dr. Orlieb has a recent book release. It's an edited volume uh, entitled Disciplinary Literacies, Unpacking Research Theory and Practice. He co-edited the book with Brittany Dellinger-Kane and Earl Cheek Jr. So if disciplinary literacy is your thing, it's something you're interested in, that's definitely a book you're going to want to pick up. Dr. Evan Ortlieb recently was the dean of the Zucker Family School of Education at the Citadel. However, at the time of this recording, he was changing positions and he will be the dean in the College of Education at South Dakota State University. And we wish him the best of, of luck there. It sounds like he's going to be doing great work. This is a fun episode where we cover a lot of ground. After the episode, make sure to stick around for Jake's take on the topic. Dr. Evan Ortlieb, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Heard some of the episodes and whatnot. I'm really excited for our talk today. I'm very excited as well because this is a little bit different conversation than I typically have on the show. Today, we're talking about a survey that you've participated in for a long time called the What's Hot Survey. Uh, before we dig into the survey, will you just provide a brief overview of you and your background how you got wrapped up in tracking current topics in literacy. Yeah, absolutely. So my background, I'm originally from Louisiana, um, sort of elementary education focus. I spent some time in middle grades and elementary grades and part-time reading specialists and decided, you know what, how do we maintain that K-12 focus, but do so uh, in higher education simultaneously? And so kind of went into higher education, but focused strongly on school district partnerships and research that actually matters. Uh, currently uh, going to be uh, assuming a deanship at South Dakota State next week and really excited about that transition. My entry into current topics or hot topics in literacy really goes back quite some time when I was recruited by Jack Cassidy, uh, who is renowned for all the right reasons, uh, who started this survey over 25 years ago. And so <clears throat> while he was doing the survey, oftentimes he would, he would either ask a graduate assistant or a new faculty member or somebody else in his kind of circle, if you will, uh, to, to help out on any given year. And uh, as a recruiting uh, tool, he said, Evan, if you come work for me over in Texas, I'll get you on the project. And I was like, you better believe it. That's something that I couldn't pass up. So three years into my professorial experiences, I made the shift to Texas A&M University Corpus Christi, where he was associate dean, and we started in that process. Uh, currently, it's done alongside colleague Stephanie Grote Garcia, who is at the University of Incarnate Word in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, both of us have strong connections back to Jack Cassidy. And since his passing, we've taken that on and continue to usher it forward to preserve this important research. Well, I appreciate uh, your connection to Jack Cassidy because he had such a long history of scholarship and, and made so many important contributions to the field. And I like that you and Stephanie are able to carry the torch onward. And like you said, this has been going on for 25 years. And I find this survey particularly helpful when I'm doing a more of a historical analysis or writing. I like to go back and look at, okay, what was hot in 2013? What was hot in 2008? Uh, to track some of these topics over time. And I think that's a really 
valuable asset that will become even more valuable as time goes on. So to dig into the survey, can you define for us when you say what's hot, what do you mean by hot? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of misnomers here. So let me dispel those. So when we say uh, a topic is hot, we mean that it's currently receiving attention in the field, whether that be uh, in the classroom K-12 world and or in the research in the extant literature. We think it's important to differentiate what we call hot to what a lot of people think it might mean. A lot of people think that um, that hot is synonymous with important, but we don't think we don't, that's not our stance. We think all literacy topics are important. Uh, within various contexts. And we're never saying that one is more important than another. Instead, we're just simply saying what is currently receiving a lot of attention out there in the field. That's a really important distinction because attention is quite a different construct than than importance. And if you watch the field over the last you know 25 years with this survey, there have been important shifts that that have occurred uh, that changed where the focus, where the spotlight is shining. But that doesn't mean that research has stopped or paused in these other areas. It doesn't mean that classroom practice has accelerated or, or been discontinued. It, it just means where is the spotlight shining? Absolutely. And we, we will regularly receive emails, right, from, from someone who says, you know, like, well, this topic's important. How can you say otherwise? Um, and we can just go right back to that's not exactly what we're saying. Uh, and kind of a good spirit. But we, we develop relationships with a lot of people in the field because this survey is is widely read and I think interesting to many people. So in th this process of the What's Hot survey, it's been a very consistent sampling and interview process, which I think helps maintain the integrity of the survey. Can you describe how you sample and conduct the interviews for the What's Hot survey? Absolutely. So many years ago, <clears throat> ILA um, looked at its membership according to various geographic regions across the U.S. and even internationally. So they would have the Great Lakes region and the Midwest and the Southeast and so forth. And so what we originally did is we, we compiled um, a, a representative sample of experts in the field. Again, these can be uh, literacy scholars. These can be uh, K-12 district leaders sometimes. These can be people with that sort of historical perspective, right? And we've selected the number of people in those respective areas according to how much a membership is represented in those geographic regions. So regularly speaking, the Southeast is very high populated in terms of the ILA membership. So the Southeast would receive, let's say, like five people out of the 25, right? So we have that relationship in terms of how many from each of these regions that we've used. We've had more or less three to five year cycles for people staying on and, and moving off. We think having some fresh blood is particularly relevant, especially when we're adding new topics. And as topics uh, change over time, that it's important to, um, to be incredibly diverse with you know, people who are uh, our surveyists. Uh, we also think that having an international representation is really important. Uh, so we'll have, you know, somebody typically in Canada, as well as somebody uh, internationally speaking beyond just North America, if you will, that's ranged between New Zealand, Australia and some different places. So we try to, again, like you said, stay standard with our sampling approach. We believe that 25 is kind of a sweet spot because we, we do literally uh, live interviews individually. So this is no survey that we send out. We have phone conversations for at least an hour with each of these people, because we feel that even though we're asking them kind of a yes or no, and to what degree do you think that qualitative context matters to us? So when they, when they say, you know what, this is the research that I've seen, and this is why I'm saying what I am, many of those quotes will make it into the paper itself. And we believe that that provides um, sort of the surrounding context that's super important to better understand why these topics are hot or not. Definitely think you get a lot more nuance to the survey when it's done in an interview qualitative format uh, yes. rather than just sending out forms and folks filling in a bubble on a sheet. And I'll also say that we're incredibly thankful for these people, right? They, they give of their time. Yes, they're interested and they want to contribute. They don't have to. We, they're not paid. They're not compensated in any way, but they believe in the mission. And I think together, this is why this research is particularly important for me. 
Another interesting part of the survey is when you interview the individual, you ask them, okay, here's a topic. Is it hot or is it not hot? And then you also have a follow-up question of whether it should be hot, which I think is an interesting twist. Can you, can you describe the should or should not be hot aspect of the survey as well? Yeah. So, so the first part, right, the hot or not, is their evaluation of what they've seen, of what they've heard, or what they've read. The second half, do you think it should or should not be hot? Do I think fluency or RTI or something else warrants a greater attention in the K-12 world or in our research? And that's where people's more opinions are populated and represented within the overall sample. And I think that way, again, if, if 100% of the, if 25 out of 25 say that something should be hot, I think that says something, right? And it, I think it also says something that half the people think it should be hot and half don't, right? What are the nuances there? Why might that be, right? Is it just I'm, a, I'm an early childhood guy, so I think that that should be receiving more attention? There's a little bit to that. Um, but again, uh, to the inverse, if everybody says this should not be receiving as much attention as it is, then maybe, uh, you know, to some degree, we need to be a little more uh, step into the role of being an advocate and saying maybe, you know, we need to turn our attention to some other areas. Absolutely. So when the final rankings come out, that it, it comes up as, you know, extremely very is kind of the gradient and then should or should not. And that just depends on what percentage of folks uh, are in agreement that something should or should not be hot. Yes. So the, those thresholds, right? If it's a greater than 50%, then we say it is hot. If it's every, you know, if it's, if it's more than three quarters, we'll say like very hot. If every single person right, says that this is hot or should be hot, that's when we say extremely, and it's kind of a unanimous opinion at that point. So I hope that gives folks the context for how the survey is conducted and how it's, it's calculated, uh, the, the gradient that topics can exist on. So in the 2023 survey, there was only one topic that was extremely hot that every single person who participated in the interview said was hot. And I don't think it will surprise any of the listeners of what that topic is, but the science of reading is extremely hot. Uh, tell us about how science of reading fared this year compared to previous years and whether or whether or not the folks in the survey indicated it should or should not be hot. So we have seen that the science of reading this year has eclipsed even how hot it was last year. Uh, so there's a lots of attention, not only in elementary, early childhood space, even adolescent and secondary spaces, uh, knowing that many states are going towards requiring all teachers, particularly reading teachers and English teachers to have this training. Now, do we agree these topics are relevant to all parties? I think that is the, the essence of, of who we are as literacy teachers, right? Using that adage that every teacher is a literacy teacher. I think some of the reasons why this has garnered increasing attention is that it is a, a morphological shift, if you will, right, to some of the practices when a lot of these teachers went through their teacher preparation programs in the 90s in particular, even early 2000s, right? And so as we go back and forth, the ebb and flow between uh, the degree with which is skills-based or more language-based and so forth, we see these um, topics receiving quite a bit of attention, right? If we go back historically around the National Reading Panel, it would have been some of those other topics, right? So we see these ebbs and flows. Uh, right now, science of reading is receiving you know, tons of grant money out there, lots of uh, teacher training. In the state of South Carolina right now, they are focusing on pre-service teacher training to the same degree. So I think in-service teachers, by and large, are, are getting prepared, if prepared in that space. Now it's creeping down into higher education and, and fitting into those classes to a greater degree. I think that's going to continue based upon the conversations that we were having. And I think, um, you know, there, there's obviously the uh, sort of a lot of attention in wars and, 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 and controversies about this. I think my stance on this is that what is it that we can learn from topics that maybe we didn't actually, you know, learn a whole lot about when we went through our respective programs. And so I always try to keep an open eye and an open ear to those possibilities. There's a lot in the letters training and those other sorts of things that I wasn't as familiar with as I probably should have been. And so going through that process has been great for me.
Yeah, I, I would agree. The literacy context in Utah feels very similar to what you were describing in South Carolina with emphasis on practicing teachers being trained in some better evidence-based practices and the emphasis on higher education as well and making sure that undergraduate pre-service teachers are trained to a specific standard. And some of the some of my role and responsibility plays into that in, in making sure that our, our undergraduates are really ready for classroom instruction and to hit the ground running. Yeah. An interesting aspect of the of the science of reading was that it was ranked extremely hot, but that the the folks in the survey indicated that it should not be hot. Uh, do you have any insight or thoughts on why uh, why that might be the case? Yeah, I think I do. So um what typically happens is if, if if something receives a ton of attention, no matter what the topic is, uh, for a year, two years, three years, such as the science of reading, there will be people who think we can only focus on X number of topics at one time. And so some people think that the sort of the overly explicit focus on science of reading takes away our focus on other important topics like comprehension, special populations or ESOL learners, et cetera. And so I think what people are insinuating and, and explicitly saying is we can't forget about some of these other cornerstones within best practices of literacy, even if we're focusing on SOR over here. On the bottom of the episode, we'll go through some other aspects of reading line by line. And, and listeners will hear that many of them, the folks on the survey indicated were not hot. Uh, but there's plenty of folks out there that would say, oh, well, but that is part of the science of reading, or mm, maybe that is outside the science of reading. And um, that's, th that's the terminology sometimes I think can be problematic because folks sort of on the inside or on the outside of the science of reading, they probably don't have a common definition, if, a line by line of what the science of reading is. And I, I believe it was Melanie Kuhn I saw on a, on a Twitter thread mentioned about how sometimes the terminology we assign things is problematic and makes the field appear more divided than it than it actually is. I, I agree with that. I think I think there's some elements where a certain organizations or players like news, and news is captivating when uh, it catches your attention, right? And and what catches your attention, you know, something bad happened, something good happened, a war going on, et cetera, right? And so if if it's not um, sort of overly hyped up, if you will, then kind of it won't receive that attention. So I think by and large, there have been a lot of um, parties weighing in that said, we have to hype it up to here in order for some topics to actually receive the attention that they feel is merited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So science of reading was the only extremely hot topic. There were several very hot topics. Let's dig into those. The first one was dyslexia and other specific learning disability. Why is dyslexia hot right now, and how is that different than previous years? Yeah, so uh, I think the International Dyslexia Association and their work to get this topic a greater level of attention has been very successful. There's been a lot of focus on how do we serve particular populations to a greater degree, knowing that, in all honesty, many of these groups have been marginalized over the years. Again, I go back to our teacher education programs. I remember I took that one special ed class. And I remember we covered dyslexia in one week, right? And so to what degree could I serve that third grader with whom I taught who had dyslexia? And the answer is very unlikely, right? And so I think there have been a number of um, grant possibilities, private donations. We've even received some here where people say, you know what, thanks to having money or something else, my kids were able to get help but I want to do something so that everybody can have a chance regardless of their you know, family income level and so forth. And so I think greater attention through professional development of in-service teachers, counselors, and educational administrators is needed on this topic. Because if you think about dyslexia from let's say a multifaceted way, we need to know more about what is it and what is it not we need to dispel sort of those rumors and, like you said, mixed definitions, if you will. How to assess it in a digital way, right? That's a lot of the work that's coming out now. What does actually interventions look like to be able to fit in? Like, let's say that you're dyslexic, but you're also English as a second language. What does that look like, right? 
let's say you have dyslexia and other learning disabilities. What does that look like? How do you parse that out? And I think the last area where we're seeing a lot of attention related to dyslexia is around advocacy and rightfully so. And so I think parents, you know, if you don't have a strong parent advocate, teacher and so forth, you're unlikely to get those services that, that the next kid would who did. And I think we're, uh, uh, you know, rightfully so we're spending a lot of time and attention on how do we craft these things together so that more people can better understand this topic and to be better actually support their learners. Yeah, I think some of the framing that's happening right now is saying uh, to, to your point that a student with dyslexia, adequate support should be the default and, and not the exception. And it shouldn't have to be that you have a lot of people in that student's corner in order to get that adequate support, that that should be capacity that is just provided within the school system by, by default. And I see, I see a lot of overlap with the science of reading movement there as well. Absolutely. In, in previous years, dyslexia hasn't been hot. Can you describe the wave that dyslexia is, is riding right now of when it's increased popularity over the last few years? <laughs> yes. Again, to your point, uh, dyslexia has been a focus, but once the science of reading kind of came in, it really just took onto a rocket ship trajectory, right? I think these are intertwined uh, in the years moving forward as well as right now. And so I think that the focus on each of those has helped out the other's cause. And I actually think that part of the reason is that dyslexic students haven't always received some of those phonological basics that they actually need, regardless of what grade level they're in, right? So if, the, if you have a dyslexic student in middle school, for instance, I'm curious as to what kinds of early literacy skills that they possess, what they might struggle with and so forth. And how do we think about those early skills, but do so using trade books of high interest? That's always the greatest challenge out there. But I think uh, we can do that to a much greater degree today. Uh, you mentioned phonemic awareness and phonological awareness, which is what we're shifting to for our next topic. And I think there's also overlap with dyslexia and the science of reading here. But phonics and phonemic awareness was ranked as very hot. Can you give us some, some detail on that? I think it's been a wave, literally like a wavelength, if you will, right? So originally started with kind of the uh, No Child Left Behind, National Reading Panel and so forth. These are a cornerstone, if you will, of effective reading instruction. And I think that stayed for, you know, five plus years and uh, with new presidency and new political uh, foci after that, we maintained a lot of that skills base, but in different ways. Right. And so I think the attention went much more towards vocabulary comprehension, if you will. I think this wave has, again, come back full circle so that there is attention on phonics, phonemic awareness. Again, those early literacy skills that are foundational to thriving, particularly in first, second, third grade, if you will. The research is very strong around that. Again, uh, surveyors noticed that these were uh, focal areas, not only in K-12, but also in a lot of the research. I think for a long time there, um, there was um, a dearth of new research related to phonics and phonemic awareness. We're seeing a rebound of that in the last couple of years as well. And so we think that it's important if a topic does receive quite a bit of attention out there that we need to we need to heed that. We need to see what actually is new in those spaces, knowing that some surveyors said that, you know, we 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 know all we need to know in these areas. But that's not my personal stance. I think there's always areas to grow and to better understand. I think that's the evolution of science is is simply what we currently know about a topic, knowing that that's going to change over time. What I found interesting with phonics and phonemic awareness is it was on the original What's Hot survey in 1997. And, if, and, and that's, this is right on the cuff, just right before NRP and No Child Left Behind. And for those first few years, it wasn't hot, if I remember yeah. right. And then after NRP and No Child Left Behind, it, it had a wave. And then when talking about Common Core 10 years ago, it sort of dropped back down. And then now it's, it's cresting back up. So another very hot topic was social justice, equity, and anti-racism in literacy. This was a topic that is new-ish to the survey. It was added in 2019. Uh, can you talk about how hot the topic has been since 2019 and any insight on, on why it's hot right now? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, many of the surveyors, every year we ask them, you know, do you suggest any new topic? 
And, you know, sometimes we will take those. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes five people will say the same topic. And, okay, let's, let's add that. And this has been one of those, again, about four years ago or so that we added to the list because we saw a lot of attention towards like Ian O'Burn's work over at College of Charleston and whatnot, where, where he's looking at, okay, you know, if we're, if we're developing young readers and people uh, heightening their literacy skills, how, how are they taking those skills and doing something about it, right? And so I think skills are, you know, particularly important for their own regard, yes, but when we're able to use them in productive ways in society, right? And I think this is some of what this topic is about, where uh, it's important to engage in diverse reading so that we're challenged with our pre-existing notions about topics and different groups of people and cultures and history even and so forth. And I think without that wide exposure, you know, um, we're never going to learn more than perhaps just what our parents taught us and what's in the textbook that was selected by some other individuals out there. I think giving teachers the onus and the responsibility to diversify their children's literature, their adolescent literature, their classroom libraries, to be able to talk about how do we use supplemental materials beyond just the curriculum itself is so important to develop perspective. And I think when we think about social justice, equity, and anti-racism, a lot of the literature that's been used over the years is not representative of those aims. And I think some groups, some schools, some teachers are doing much better at this than others. I think we have a long way to go to where we can actually say, you know what, we are equitable in our literacy instruction. I get the sense that the conversation around social justice, equity, and anti-racism literacy is about how do we use literacy as a tool to promote social good. And I think there's broader things happening there as far as what books a library can and can't curate and, you know, quote unquote, book bans and things like that. But I really think at its root is how do we use literacy as a vehicle for social good um, rather than just outcomes on an end of year high stakes assessment. So those were the topics that were hot. And, and when I look back at 2023, I think, yeah, that, that to me, that sums it up really well of what was hot. There were several topics that received some increased attention that we'll have to see whether they crest and become hot in future years. But the first one was adolescent literacy. Uh, this topic was hot for a lot of years, and then it hasn't been hot the last few. Can you talk around the increased attention around adolescent literacy? So we believe that adolescent literacy uh, has become an umbrella term <clears throat> where disciplinary literacy and other topics may actually fit underneath it. And as a result of that, we think that the pure term adolescent literacy in terms of its individual level of focus has may, maybe uh, undercut in the process. So we believe that there are tenets of adolescent literacy that are hot, but right now adolescent literacy as a whole is not really receiving the attention that other areas are. We think that science of reading has a role in that, knowing that it's shifted the focus down to early elementary and early childhood years. We Again, we say that we're not saying something's not important. Uh, what we're saying is adolescent literacy, even though it has in years past been one of the hottest topics on a consistent basis, it has not been with the um, increased attention in disciplinary literacies and some other related. I'm not sure I thought about adolescent literacy being an umbrella term for things like disciplinary literacy, but I, I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a very productive framing around it. And yeah, as far as the, the spotlight of attention goes, I think the science of reading, it's, it's very clear that that is white hot shining on elementary and especially early elementary which means that it's harder to shine a spotlight on upper elementary, middle school, and even high school students and supporting them with, uh, with productive literacy. Yeah, I mean, we, we had one teacher as part of the survey, uh, district level person, and she said, adolescent or secondary literacy matters too. And that was her quote, you know, and, and we agreed, but, you know, just the attention's not there right now. Yeah. So another area of increased attention is policy and advocacy. Can you talk a bit about the increased attention in that area? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so around policy, knowing that, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that if we are not active from the stance of, of participating in policy formation, 
then we're going to be reactive and sometimes it's going to be too late. And so we're, um, what, uh, the researchers and the other surveyors, um, commented on is they said that, uh, policy and advocacy is, is hot right now. It's receiving attention, but sometimes they're being created by people who we would rather it not be the case. Right. And so whether that be a bureaucratic opinion, whether that be organizations that they did not agree with, right? There's a lot of literacy related organizations, I think with different missions. And so I think we tend to align ourselves with ones that really speak to our values and what we're passionate around. Uh, but some of those groups are much better advocates than other ones. Some groups say that that's not their purpose, right? Is to be able to participate in those ways. And so uh, knowing the policies uh, guide teachers, sometimes shackle teachers. It depends on the system uh, that they thought that there's a lot of focus right now from teachers, from school leaders, and from researchers alike around policy uh, and the need or the existing degree with which some groups advocate on their behalf. Yeah, absolutely. At, at the end of the day, policy does so much to shape how practices are enacted uh, within the classroom. And sometimes uh, policy can be a very, um, I don't know, crude, might be too crude of a term, but it's, it's, it's not a scalpel sometimes. And so that, that, that has both benefits and drawbacks. But when I look at everything on the hot list, science of reading, dyslexia, phonics and phonemic awareness, social justice, equity, and anti-racism, obviously strong advocacy um, happening by organizations in each of those areas. But going down that list, I can think policies around the country and especially here in Utah on each of those as as well. So I think that speaks to us as folks who care about literacy being actively part of our democratic system and trying to yes. shape policy in a way that's going to be productive and supportive for our teachers and especially our student learners. Yes, we, we thought that those two terms go together. There's some survey participants who wish that we had separated them but we feel that it's, it's really the one-two punch that, that makes a lot of those decisions and impacts on what it means to be a successful K-12 teacher or even higher education personnel. So there was one new topic on the list for 2023. Tell us what the, the new topic added to the survey was and a bit of information about it. Yeah, absolutely. So we added artificial intelligence. We feel that when you think about what does it mean to be literate, today. Uh, if you don't have uh, skill sets related to how to use artificial intelligence appropriately, whether it be ChatGPT or Google Bard or whatever, um, then we don't believe that you're fully literate. And I know that that could be a controversial statement. Uh, this goes for how to use it in your pedagogy. This goes how to use it for your day-to-day -day operations as a literate individual. This goes for how we prepare students starting in the elementary grades to familiarize these themselves with these tools so that they can learn as fast as they as fast as we would like them that they would add this skill set and that they could uh, delve into you know disciplinary literacies accordingly we think that what it means to read and write today is drastically changed in the last year directly as a result of artificial intelligence um, I know at home, I, I write uh, bedtime stories with my two girls uh, using ChatGPT. They insert everything that they want to know, right? Uh, include monsters and alligators and, and bears, set it in Charleston, South Carolina, make it at a first grade reading level, write it in 250 words, have a conflict where dad is the protagonist and, and boop, you hit the button and here's the story, right? And that's how we do some stories because you run out of, you know, original thoughts at some point. So we see it not at, to replace what it means to be a teacher or a father. In this case, we see it as a supplemental tool that is so valuable that we cannot ignore it. I love that idea. I hadn't thought about doing that for bedtime stories, but I, I'm, I'm going to use that. And you might have to start doing some of those for South Dakota just to kind of <laughs> prime the pump there. Um, you know, might, might be a little bit different landscape. Absolutely. Uh, so you also brought up there's multiple levels of implications around artificial intelligence. It's shaping what it means to be literate or in our modern era, but it also is shaping, you know, how do we use this for instruction? How do we use this to leverage student outcomes? And 
there's going to be major research implications across all of those. And some of these other areas, you know, the wave was kind of building and then now it's, you know, peaking. But I feel like with artificial intelligence, there was kind of like talk around it, but it was like on a Monday, it wasn't here. And on Tuesday, you had chat GPT and it was here. Yes. And there, there wasn't this sort of buildup. It just was all of a sudden, wow, okay, let's figure out how to do it. This. So I think a year from now, 18 months from now, we're going to just start seeing a wave of research around, around using artificial intelligence at each of those levels. And it'll be interesting to see what that looks like as far as how it shifts the instructional landscape and what it means to be literate in general. No, I, I totally agree. I'm a big proponent of, you know, whether you're in higher education or even elementary, middle school, secondary grades, that they're, you know, using a green, yellow, and red light system for particular assignments where it's like, you know what, this assignment, I want you to use anything and everything you can. We're trying to get to the result through any means necessary. Green light on anything and everything. Yellow light might mean, you know, the practice here, but your final essay, we're actually going to write ourselves and so forth. Red is, you know, don't dabble in that space. I think we live day to day based on the parameters that are provided, right? I come to work eight to five or like I don't speed because of this. I think we need to provide those parameters to students because the more that we say this is a bad thing, they, they know right away, like they're lying to me and they're using it to make their PowerPoints and to write their letters of recommendation. or what. Like we don't want to be a hypocrite in this process. And it's so important to be authentic in the ways that we couch and provide those parameters for students. And I think that is what we've always done, whether we used a calculator on a test or we didn't, or whether we were using online encyclopedias or not and so forth. This is the new wave of that in a much more dynamic way. But again, we have to be leaders in this space and we have to be able to do so through research. And I think what you're offering is a longer road to travel, a more complicated, a more complex, a more nuanced road to travel. But I think that will benefit our students much more in the long run than just, nope, if you use chat GPT, it's cheating. There's, there's a lot of nuance there that if we can teach our students how to use it, we can actually really accelerate their, their capability to be a productive functioning participant of society. Absolutely. So what we have left now is a rapid fire. We're just kind of going to go through the bullet list of a bunch of other items. And uh, you're just going to say whether it's hot, not hot, whether it, folks said it should be hot or should not be hot. And um, I just included those because these are areas that I think are, are interesting. And I find that the, some of the contrast of these is interesting with the contrast of other aspects that we've talked about. And then maybe once we get through the, the list, we can have some, just some brief discussion there. But the first one, assessment, where did that rank? Assessment is hot. Should it be hot or should it not be hot? Well, the surveyors right now were saying that assessment should be hot. Comprehension. Comprehension right now is not hot, but that they say it definitely should be with universal agreement. Uh, disciplinary literacy. Disciplinary literacy is not hot, but that it should be. And I'll, I'll put in here that you have a really recent book on disciplinary literacy, don't you? An edited volume. <laughs> yes, it just came out uh, about a month and a half ago. I uh, did it with uh, Dr. Brittany Kane and also my former major professor at LSU, Earl Cheek. And this book actually delves into some spaces that have not been done before, such as like dance and art and some other areas that we think literacy actually exists. And we can do a better job at maybe bringing that uh, to the limelight. We should have plugged that at the beginning, at the top of the episode, <laughs> but, uh, you know, better, better late than never. So maybe just of tell course. us the title of it and where folks can get it. Yeah, so it's Unpacking Disciplinary Literacies from Research, Theory, and Practice, uh, and it's through Guilford uh, Press, and it's available all over. I like Guilford Press. I think they, they do a good job. All right, Absolutely. back to regular scheduled programming. Uh, fluency, hot, not hot, where is that at? Fluency is not hot right now, um, and in mixed, uh, some people are saying it should be hot. Motivation, engagement, attitude. Yeah, that is uh, not hot right now, but that people said there should be more attention being given to it. RTI. RTI is not hot right now, um, but that it should be. And then writing. Writing focus, um, 
has almost always not been hot, uh, but that it definitely should be with universal agreement, particularly because uh, writing teachers, English teachers, if you will, are feeling those pains from not having enough research, particularly around artificial intelligence and its impact on um, their teaching practices. And so all the surveyors with universal agreement said that more attention is needed in that space. Yeah, writing, unfortunately, just tends to get a shorter end of the stick. And um, despite there is there's a lot of great research out there, but also it, it's a little bit harder to conduct research in writing because the, the skill is more unconstrained than something like a phonics or a fluency. Yes, the, the assessment, the evaluation of writing is challenging. Uh, we, have, we did a, a sampling of, of journal articles, if you will, and I want to say it's less than 7% of literacy articles are related to writing. Wow. Um, that's saddening, but, but, you know, not surprising also to a degree, unfortunately. So in looking at that, that whole list that we just provided, every one of those, uh, well, most of that, there's was, there was a mix. Most of them were not hot. Uh, assessment was the only one I believe on there that we said was hot. But that's the right. uh, evaluators, the participants in the survey said that it should be hot. Are there any patterns or themes that you pull out of that in aggregate? So I would say most of the topics from the surveyors are deemed to be, should be hot, right? And so, the, you know, there's sort of that universal opinion that we should be giving attention to everything. That's one component of it. Uh, knowing that, you know, much like windows on your screen right here, you can only focus on so many at one time, right? And so there's that adage. Uh, I think secondly is, uh, the more topics that we've seen are listed as should be hot is also a, ref a reflection that uh, a, a much small, uh, smaller number of topics are very hot or extremely hot. So there's kind of that inverse relationship. If there's only a couple that said, you know, uh, these are very hot, then there's going to be many more that are listed as should be hot. And that's a pattern that I uh, you've seen in previous years as well, that there's sort of an inverse amount when there's a smaller set yes. of, of very hot or extremely hot that there tends to be a wider spread of what should, a list of should be hot. Am I understanding that correctly? Absolutely. That's okay. correct. And so this year with one topic being extremely hot and then a short list of ones being very hot, that might help us understand that there is a lot of aspects to literacy. And when we're thinking pre-K, early elementary, later elementary, middle school, high school, college, life and society, that there's a lot of aspects to that. And our ability field yes. to focus our attention can only go in so many areas at once. It's true. And how we come up with these 29 or 30 topics, right? That's tough because there could technically probably be 100 topics, right? And other people would say, you know, it's kind of redundant at times. And we feel there's there's kind of this middle ground right around 30 topics or so. Yeah, no, that's a great point that, you know, you could probably have a topic like orthographic mapping be on the survey this year. And that would probably be be very hot. There's sub parts in all of these or, you know, yeah. text structure as a part of comprehension. And that probably would not be hot. So um, I, I, I appreciate your work in being able to not only keep a consistent sampling procedure, but curating a list of of, you know, just keeping it tight of what's really what's really being captured in our current moment of literacy, because even though something feels white hot right now, tides shift and things ebb and flow. And I think this is great ongoing research that just helps capture where the world is at, the literacy world is at in a specific year. No, thank you for that. I think in general, from year to year, we might have, let's say maybe two new topics, two, three new topics on a year to year basis and maybe one kind of topic roll off, maybe one to two topics roll off. And we feel that that's kind of that sweet spot. Again, we rely upon um, post-surveyor feedback on, you know, what would you like to change for next year? What are you kind of seeing that we should track and consider for next year? And so we lean on them not only for the results, but also how to shape the survey for years to come. Thanks to you and Stephanie Grote-Garcia for your work with the survey. If folks want to learn a bit more about the survey or, or even read the survey, where might they be able to do that? Yeah, so the survey is featured in the Journal of Literacy Research from A-L-E-R. Um, and so you can check it out online. You can even receive the hard copies. I know I still do. I appreciate those in hand sometimes. 
this particular article is typically situated at the end of each year uh, so that people can kind of get that summative, you know, narrative story, if you will, an account for what has been hot this year. So this one isn't quite in print yet. Is that my understanding? It's That's right. So this one should be out uh, within a month or so. It's, it's going through the page proofs right now. Okay, awesome. So yeah, so it's pretty forthcoming. Will that be open access or is it behind paywall? So it's not open access right away. I think there's a year uh, long process before it okay. actually does. Um, but I'm sure folks were really interested in it and they didn't have access behind the paywall. They could reach out to you directly to be able to receive that. Absolutely. I'm happy to help out and to be able to support anybody who's interested in reading the work. Okay, fantastic. Well, Dr. Evan Ortlieb, thank you for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Final question, when you look out over this literacy landscape, what is currently filling your literacy cup? For me, it's all about uh, literacy with special populations. And what I mean by that, my uh, upcoming role in South Dakota State and being able to work with Native American populations on four reservations across the state, rethink what does teacher education look like in a much more holistic way. That's number one. Number two <clears throat> is, is knowing that the sort of the uh, population of the U.S. is changing with time. How are we changing to best embrace English uh, language learners, English as a second language, if you will? And how do we see that as our core practice and not something that's, uh, you know, uh, that's not quite here yet, if you will? I think uh, the last two is around exceptional learners, right? And, and how do we do justice for every student in our classrooms? And I think that also includes, as you know, gifted and talented learners as well, right? How do we push people forward and meeting them where they are to use uh, Barb Maranek and Linda Gambrell term from way back when? How do we meet students where they are to be able to bring them forward? And we do so through literacy. Fantastic. Dr. Evan Orley, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. You're welcome. My pleasure. big thank you to Dr. Evan Ortlieb for joining us on the show to talk about the What's Hot Literacy Survey for 2023. My big takeaway from the episode deals with that inverse relationship that Dr. Ortlieb mentioned. If you recall, he said that years where there's tended to be a smaller set of very hot or extremely hot topics that there also tends to be an inverse relationship with having more areas that the folks in the survey indicate should be hot. And what I think is interesting about that in our current literacy context is science of reading is the term that's white hot. But yet there's other terms like comprehension, fluency, RTI that folks would definitely say, oh, well, that's part of the science of reading yet folks on the survey ranked that as currently not hot. And so you'll notice on this show, science of reading isn't a term that I really invoke a lot or that I use a lot. And it's not because personally I, I agree or disagree with, with the science of reading writ large. It's more so because the terminology can be slippery, that advocates and critics of the science of reading are going to, if you have them make a list of what the science of reading is, my guess is that that list might not have uh, as much overlap as we would hope. And so the terminology sometimes can drive some, I wouldn't say division, but uh, can drive disagreement in the field when, you know, really what I care about is evidence-based practice. And so it'll be interesting to watch how the science of reading continues to evolve. I think currently the science of reading thus far has been a revolution of practice and instruction and not necessarily a revolution of research. The, the science of reading movement really started with practitioner-facing materials, podcasts and books for practitioners discussing practices that are currently happening in education and critiques around specific curriculum. Whereas, you know, folks in the research world that are familiar with the field and familiar with evidence-based practice, a lot of these things weren't maybe necessarily new to them, that they knew the research around phonics and phonemic awareness, and they knew some of the aspects that were being pushed. But yet, um, it, it was this revolution of practice that has just sort of enveloped the whole literacy sphere, where I think you are going to see more researchers invoking the term science of reading. And then now we've sort of, you know, what Dr. Ortlieb said is 2023, 
science of reading even eclipse was even more white hot than it was in 2022. And I think what you're seeing now is it's coming to a policy level and systems change level. And so, uh, like I said, it'll be interesting to see what the science of reading does the next few years. But um, looking over previous years of the What's Hot survey, it will have a shelf life that there will be a year where it's not extremely hot and maybe it slips to very hot as the literacy landscape ebbs and flows. But I think it is very important to recognize the moment that we're at in literacy, where right now everyone is talking about instruction and what instructional practices should be and what good instruction looks like. And wherever folks are at on that science of reading spectrum, I do think conversation around effective practice and efficient practice is a very productive practice that as a field, there are aspects of literacy, it's like we talked about, that we should be caring about. But all of those, if we're thinking about kids, teenagers, adults learning in classrooms, that instruction should be a focal point of what we care about. And I do think that is something that the science of reading conversation is definitely bringing to the table. Thank you so much for joining us in this episode. This is the last interview-style episode of 2023. I will put in a plug, though, that I will be releasing right around New Year's my resolution for 2024. So you're going to want to check that out because I think there'll be items in there that you'll definitely want to listen to. I hope your 2023 was a great year. I hope 2024 looks even better for you. This is Jake Downs with the Teaching Literacy Podcast. And until next time, let's work together to make reading and writing instruction even better.